There's something to be said for the here and now, don't get me wrong, but it often comes at the expense of digging deeper. And once a conversation pattern stalls and cycles, how are you supposed to break free and forge something new? For me, that's what a dandelion represents. It's the breaking of patterns, not quite spontaneous, but also outside of the rut and routine. The plant itself didn't do anything, but just the sight of it will compel you, even if only for a moment, to pause and consider something bigger, though also infinitely smaller than yourself. It's walking and randomly in the middle of a conversation, the pausing and plucking of a fuzzy white fluff peeking out from a sea of green. It's the closing of the eyes and releasing a half-formed desire into the universe as your breath carries hundreds of little dandelion seeds off into the world. This little bubble of a moment is both intimate and jarring, an entire world away from the smallness that comes before and after it, the mundanity of the day-to-day. And yet, because we all know what to do when one sees a dandelion, no one looks at you sideways or thinks twice about this otherwise bizarre ritual. Like the dandelion strewn on the side of the road, this podcast aims to serve as a reminder to dive deeper into the I know who you are, but tell me why kind of conversations that only exist when we step outside of ourselves and lean into each other. The kind of conversations we always need more of, but particularly now, as the whole world feels adrift and separate. And with the launch of the Dandelion Project at HLS, students can sign up to have their own random, but most importantly, real conversations with each other. And with that, it's finally time for me to introduce you to our first guest, HLS2L Marta Canary. Marta is an astoundingly good cook, knows all things international relations having worked at the Council on Foreign Relations for three years before coming to law school, and is obsessed with the internet. Well, without further ado, meet Marta. Hi, Marta. How's it going? I'm good. Hi, Mizelle. I'm so, so happy to have you on our podcast today. I'm so excited. So my first kind of, how are you? Where are you? Where did you spend quarantine? How are you holding up with things? I'm in Cambridge right now. I just got here a few days ago, but I spent quarantine in this past six months of craziness in Toronto, Canada, which is where I grew up. And I was with my family and my partner and it was really great. That's awesome. So you grew up in Canada, correct? Yeah. So I spent the like bulk of my childhood and adolescence in Canada, but I was born in Italy. Um, and then shortly after that, I moved to New York briefly um, with my parents. Okay. So born in Italy, which part of Italy? Just This is my mind trying to place you somewhere. <laughs> so I was born in Lodi, which is a town near Milan. So in the north of Italy. Okay. And you move at what age? At around three, four, I moved to Brooklyn with my family because my father won a scholarship to study architecture in New York. Yeah, it was very cool. Everyone in the family was like, don't go. This is a terrible idea. But they just packed up and left. Oh, how like ballsy. I love that. Yeah, so there's actually a possibly apocryphal story that when I was born, it snowed for the first time in like years, and in, Italy. in in the specifically the town, yeah, but right. I, not in all of Italy, gotcha. not in all of Italy. 
And my parents were like, sorry, it's a sign. We got to move her to colder climates. Oh my God. I love that. That's so funny. And so how long do you, do you live in New York for? We lived in New York for four years. Um, and then my dad got his like visa when he graduated, his visa just expired. And so we had to leave the country and my parents were like, Canada's close. Let's just, let's just go to Canada for a year or so and then reapply to enter the United States. And they got to Toronto and they loved it so much that they decided to stay. Okay. So New York, but so you were sentient at some point in New York. Like you, okay. And what did you have any memories of that? Um, I have memories of my YMCA daycare where I played with Legos. Um, and I was also friends with Biggie Smalls's daughter, Tiana Wallace. This explains so much. Yeah. Well, I, I, did, I wasn't aware at the time that she was Biggie Smalls's daughter. I was informed of that only a few years ago. Um, but we used to play Legos together a lot. Um, and then, yeah, that's mainly it. And like other assorted memories involving like Barbie horses for some reason. Those are like really present in my memories of New York. I yeah. see. Okay. And then so then you moved to Canada and like what language did you speak at home? Because like I think of myself that English wasn't my first language. And when I started going to school, I just like didn't know how to speak and I was like super confused. So I'm just I always wonder with people who were not born in or had parents who are not from the States or from an English speaking country. Yeah, so Italian was my first language, and even when we moved, I we continued to speak it at home, in part because my parents moved to New York with, my, my father more so than my mother, but they moved to New York with a, like a very limited grasp of the English language. So I we kind of exclusively spoke Italian at home. When I got older and started speaking English, even then it was a rule in the house that once you walked in the door you left English at the door and you started speaking Italian. Um, and I think as, as is the experience for many children of immigrants, I was also the de facto translator for a lot of my uh, childhood because for some reason, my mother just like really struggles with English. It's like 25 years and she sounds like she arrived yesterday. It's like the running joke in the family. <laughs> it's kind of amazing though, language. Like my grandma who, you know, was like a stay at home. She, she really didn't interact with the world that much. It's my dad's mom. Her English is like, people meet her and they're like, how does she speak such good English? Like she's like forgetting her Farsi in her old age. Whereas my mom's parents who are substantially younger, came a lot younger, had to like raise kids in the American education system, worked in the American, like both of them worked. Both of them were like that. Like they just like don't really speak English. Like, I don't understand how that happens. Yeah, some people have the gift and others not one of them. So, like, what was your reaction being Italian, um, but being raised in the U.S. and then in Canada and being Canadian? And, like, did you go through the, the kind of immigrant kid phase of cultural rejection or was it seamless? What was it like for little Marta? Definitely wasn't seamless. I think I experienced kind of the similar tensions and kind of weird spaces that uh, a lot of immigrant kids feel, particularly with not really having 
a sense of belonging to any one place um, or any place at all. I have always felt most, you know, Italian while I'm in North America. And then the moment I get to Italy, I feel super North American. I like notice all of the parts of me that stand out wherever I am. And like, what are those parts? Like, what is Italian in North America and what is like, here to break it down? For sure. So in North America, it's a lot. I, my partner is like a seventh generation, like white Canadian boy from a small town. And so we've noticed like a lot of interesting cultural, um, like differences that uh, like have just come up in our relationship. So like small things, like I grew up like naked in my house. Like my parents walk around naked. I walk around naked. Like it's not, you know, like if I'm going to change, I'm going to change wherever I am. Um, Whereas like my partner probably has like in, in his words, hasn't seen his parents naked since he was like three or four years old. Oh, how interesting. And I mean, it's, I think the interplay between individual identity and community is like so fascinating. Um, I feel like that's like a perfect transition to, it's it's very well known, something by, it's very well known. I mean, I know this about you, um, <laughs> that you have this, I don't know what the word, correct word is, fascination, study of, um, obsession with, pick your, pick your uh, adjective, of like online communities. Um, so can you kind of tell us a little bit about that and which ones you're part of, like where that came from, sort of with what it is, what I'm kind of alluding to here? <laughs> yeah. So I have always kind of identified as like a process nerd, like someone who needs to understand how things work, the nuts and bolts, like what's the lexicon, the language of something. And I think that stems from just like wanting to understand the world around me and like categorize it and like figure things out from an early age. Um, Because I, you know, I felt very different when I was younger. And so my, my solution as like a type A person was to learn everything I could about the world that I was in so that I could be prepared and I could confront it kind of with the knowledge of, of the like world under my belt. Um, And then that kind of turned into like a more recreational obsession with, you know, infiltrating various internet communities and like just kind of seeing the drama and the language and and how that world works. I like call myself an amateur like internet anthropologist. Um, and I think it stemmed from like my my kind of role as part of an internet community when I was a kid, I was, or not a kid, when I was a young teen, I was like a prolific uh, author of Harry Potter fan fiction. Um, And I kind of like found this space for myself that I like really enjoyed a lot. There were so many people who like shared the exact same interests as I had. And um, for like a young like for a young adolescent, primarily female, it's a like a very like gendered community, but for young like adolescents, it's like this great way to explore both maybe their like creative outlet, 
their love for writing, but in a world that's like already been established for them and already like they derive so much joy from. Um, and it's also like a great way to meet like internet friends. Like I had all of these editors for my, for my like stories that like to this day, I never met in real life and like, don't know who they are in real life. I just knew them from their, like you would know them, like you would spend hours like talking to them. Yeah. We would like email back and forth. And so like, I had this one editor, the term is beta in the fan fiction community and her screen name was Dim Sum Noodle. And I never knew like her age, her name, what she looked like, where she lived. And like to this day, I always wondered, like, I wonder if I like ran into her at an airport and like we both didn't know. Yeah. Um, but this is a very long-winded answer to your question, which is that probably like during college, I started getting really interested in internet communities that I was not a part of um, and just like really wanted to see what, what was, what was the drama in this community? What, like, what is the language they use? What's the shop talk they use? What is shop um, talk? Like the lingo? Shop, yeah. Like the lingo. Okay. Um, and so I would start like, infiltrating is a strong word but I guess that describes what I did which was like join various Facebook groups and join like reddit subreddits and um of like what like like there's Harry Potter you know Twilight like of where can you place me in like some of these communities for sure so I would say that they span from like very internet specific communities so those are usually like fandoms so like the Twilight fandom, like you just said, or maybe the like Star Wars or Game of Thrones or whatever, those tend to be like very large and encompass like a huge variety of people. And then there's the super niche, like truly could only have ever been spawned from the internet. And those are like communities of people who like are adults, but collect Furbies or like crossword puzzle enthusiasts or people who are into flags and vexillology which is the study of flags um and then what (laughs) and then there's like communities of people who like like for example like homesteaders so those are people who like want to live off the grid and so they like buy like a small plot of land somewhere in the United States usually and like go and try and live there off the grid and so there are Facebook groups for homesteaders there's like one the grid of course yeah yeah, exactly one of the Facebook groups I love is called um homesteading and prepping dating and it's like made for people who want to live this kind of off the grid lifestyle but also want to find a partner and the biggest problem is not like do we share things in common or whatever it whose land are we going to live on so like in these like dating posts, people will be like, name, age, like my interests, where my land is, I'm in Wyoming, and I'm like, either willing to relocate, willing to like, have someone come live on the land with me, I'm only interested in long distance, like the the focus on the land is like, super important for them. Okay, so hearing I have like two, two strands of questions that I'm going to try to like, jump back and forth between but one is like 
the logistics of this entire thing for you? Like what is just the first thing that comes to mind? <laughs> I'm very confused on all of this, but also like how, how does like you as Marta and you as Marta be like, as you said, anthropologist, like, so I guess we can go with the logistical stuff first. How do you find said community? Like Marta goes from Harry Potter to how do you find Frisbee enthusiasts? And then do you just like join, like walk me through that process? Yeah, it usually happens in the form of like maybe a throwaway mention in an article that I'm reading. Like, you know, it'll be interviewing someone and it'll, they'll say, it'll say like X, who is like an avid, um, like a Wikipedia editor, uh, like thinks this. And then I think like Wikipedia editor, like, I wonder what that community is like. So I kind of like do my research and I look if there are any Facebook groups dedicated to that. I look on Reddit um, and I just try to like map out the contours of that internet, the geographies of that internet community, like where do these discussions take place? Are there forums, etc.? And then to the extent that it feels appropriate and not like exploitative or voyeuristic, I start like joining these groups. What are you looking for? What what strikes you in these communities? What draws you to this process other than the actual act of like doing it? Like what do you find interesting? And if you want to like pick a certain community that that comes to mind. Yeah, I think part of it is that I kind of marvel. I think there are a lot of like terrible things about the internet, but one thing that I love and marvel at is just that it has allowed for people to find their people, whatever that means for them. Um, And as someone who went through that herself as a kid who like felt very alone and different um, and found her friends on the internet, I love seeing that happen. And I um, love seeing kind of those relationships form. I think also from like a more theoretical level, I find it fascinating that no matter how disparate the community is or, or the, you know, wide breadth of topics and hobbies and whatever that an internet community could possibly be based on, they all start to kind of share similar features or they all start to like build their own like structures. It's kind of like a weird rule of law emerges regardless of what the topic is. So like the larger community gets, you start to have like, like I said, internal language, internal lingo, you start to have like leaders, you start to have internal rules, you start to have feuds. Um, And it's so interesting that like the more complex a community get, the more they all start to kind of look the same in terms of like their almost like political structures. And in, in the newsletter that I have about internet communities, for every internet community I analyze I usually provide on a scale of one to 10, a network complexity rating that is like absolutely unscientific, but provides like a kind of ballpark estimate of like how organized that community is internally. 
touched upon, which is like the finding your people component. Um, what do you think that, I don't know, I, th I think it's so fascinating what you said about, because it's the duality, right, of like finding your people, but when you get, and there's such a value and importance to that, but also the niche it gets, the more isolating you can be, because it, it's on the internet, I can feel, I imagine it can also isolate someone from their actual, you know, their, their like lived experience or community. Um, but I guess as someone who, as you said, like went through it herself and found her people in some ways on the internet as a young, you know, young youth, um, what do you think that like finding your people does for someone? Like, why do you think, I mean, I mean, this is obviously very meta, but, but like emotionally for you, like if you could put us in your mind and shoes, like what it was like for you to find your people and what you, you know, you see in other people online. Yeah, well, it's an interesting question, and I might be kind of like answering it a bit circuitously here, but I always think about that in terms of like the more politically extreme internet communities like the alt-right or like, like white supremacist internet communities. And like, I haven't kind of spent too much time reading those because they're frightening, but it's funny how like, you see the exact same desire for community from like people who are in these like super politically extreme communities. And I think sometimes the desire for community and the desire for people can like become more significant than like the actual community itself. And so like, for example, something I've noticed in a lot of these internet communities is that the like organizing principle or like the hobby that brought everyone together becomes almost secondary to the community itself. So oh, what do you mean by like, that? So like suppose that a forum was created for people who enjoy underwater deep sea cave diving. But suddenly over time, that forum, the, the, the topics in the forum start to proliferate. Suddenly there's a dating topic. Suddenly there's a parenting topic. Suddenly there's a favorite books. And so while maybe an interest in deep sea underwater cave diving is what brought all of these people together, very little of the time they spend together involves discussing underwater deep sea cave diving. It, it involves discussing all sorts of things like how someone is planning to renovate their house to like how someone like dating advice or maybe like asking members of the community for advice on like how they're parenting a kid. And so I think there's like this deep need from a lot of people, particularly those that might not have felt like they found their people in the quote unquote real world to find friends in a community. Um, and that's why these communities expand so far beyond just like the organizing hobby or principle that brought these people together. And I mean, for you, young Marta joined one of these communities and was like an active actual participant, right? In it rather than studying it. Do you think that in finding your people online that allowed you to feel more confident in yourself or like, I don't know what the language would be, but like to then find people in the real world. Cause it's not like you're like actively still live, you know, living on 
the Harry Potter fan fiction universe, unless you are, and that's a no. whole other conversation. No, public service announcement. I am not a member of the Harry Potter fan fiction community anymore. Um, it is still alive and well. Sometimes I check in on it. But I think, yeah, when I was a kid, and I think this is not a unique experience at all, I was obsessed with the idea that people might find me weird. Like that was the my biggest fear, that I was weird and different. And I think, you know, I I was I was super weird. Um, but you like were naked all the time. I was naked all the time and I was writing Harry Potter fan fiction. I mean, like people were right to stay very far away from me. But <laughs> but I think like and and not only I was was I afraid of being weird, I was afraid that I was like uniquely weird, right? Like no one was like me and that was a problem. And so finding these people on the internet that were like very similar to me um, was helpful in that I realized that I was not alone. And I think probably also like tamped down my burgeoning narcissism. Like you're not special. You're not the only person who writes like stories based on Harry Potter fan fiction or sorry, Harry Potter characters. Because that's such the duality, right? You're holding two truths at once. One of which is that you are the singular weirdest. No one could love me. I am this mutant, horrible human. And at the same time, I'm this crazy, cool, amazingly unique one in seven billion person. And those are two sides of the same coin. How do you think that online community uh, is best formed? I think the most important, like, um, indicator of success for an internet community is lack of exclusivity or lack of, like, internal hierarchy. Um, I think, like, especially with COVID, I've been seeing with so many people spending time on the internet more and more, um, and also many kind of fan communities being revived with like new books coming out. So like, for example, the most recent like Twilight book just came out. Um, and so I've been seeing that a lot of these communities have uh, started being rejoined by people who perhaps were in the community 10 years ago and are now trying to like re-enter that world perhaps for nostalgic reasons or just because you know they feel very lonely and would like to kind of rebuild or have once again have a sense of community that they missed and I would say the vast majority of these communities are like wholeheartedly rejecting these new entries they're kind of you know very elitist very exclusive about the community they've built um, and like, you know, are very resistant to new people joining. And I think that is like leading to so much internal strife in these communities between people who are like want to expand and want more people to join and people who are kind of adamant about having their own secret club. And I think that's the problem when these communities become less about like a place to bring together the like enthusiasts of something and more about like a secret club that people want to join. And speaking from personal experience, I think a lot of people are like really want to have a secret club online because they didn't feel like they 
had that in real life. Like they are able to, at least online, replicate kind of being part of the popular group. Um, and so they try, they wield this power on the internet that perhaps they like, you know, were very envious about other people having in school or in workplaces or things like that. Um, and, you know, that has been kind of the biggest indicator of when a community starts to spiral is when people start to make rules about who can join and who can't and who's a real, you know, member of the community and who isn't and so on and so forth. No, but like, what is the drama in the Furby community? Because I just, I think it's so, I think what I keep trying to come back to is, I mean, something as simple as a Furby community that should literally just be like, we love Furbies. Look at my new Furby becomes a, a literal universe, like an imagined community where, you know, if you could give them a plot of land, they would all go happily live together, it sounds like. And then it just, what was the drama in the Furby community? Oh, I could go on for hours about this, but I'll try to keep it short. The biggest thing was that this one user called Furby Baby had a lot of money and kept buying all of the most rare Furbies for way above asking price. She was basically hoarding the most expensive Furbies because there are certain Furbies that are so rare they go for like $600, $700. And I believe the most rare Furby is called like the Kitchen Clown Furby or something like that. And the this this user Furby Baby was using this extremely rare seven hundred dollar Furby to do fur sun sun testing. So she would put the Furby out in the sun and see how the the like sun would bleach the fur. And users were enraged and would were saying like, "How dare you treat this Furby like this? You are like." You, you, you are damaging this very expensive Furby and you're also preventing someone who would like love it and take care of it from having it by like buying up all these Furbies. Then another user started accusing Furby Baby of being like a slave owner to their Furbies. Which are was, you kidding? Yeah, itself extremely problematic. And then the, the community just like absolutely like imploded um, with people kind of on all sides. And it was it was terrible. And then it just literally unraveled. Like there is no more online Furby enthusiast community. It there are islands of 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 the community still on mostly Tumblr, but um, the like the kind of organized like centralized community has kind of fallen apart. Yeah, all because of Furby Baby and her sun bleaching of the fur of the expensive Furbies. So kind of like what you said about noodle babe or whatever her name was your editor for harry potter dim some noodle noodle. if you're out there dim some noodle please get in touch but like you have as you said you could be in the airport and have no idea who she is and bump into her and i guess the same would kind of go for furby babe um or whatever her name names are obviously not my forte but how much do you think that like anonymity plays into that like do you think that both in terms of you being able to build this connection with someone and someone acting in a way that, you know, ostensibly you know that your actions are going to cause some sort of rupture in your universe. Yeah, I think there are, like, incredible positives to the fact that it's anonymous, and one of them is that, like, people from 
across life experiences can be brought together by, you know, like a simple interest in something. And so often some of the most diverse communities I've seen in terms of age and gender and race and socioeconomic status have been ones based on like super niche hobbies, like, again, the study of flags. Um, And so people are, you know, brought together um, and and may interact with people that they never would have. Um, And in fact, in like the flags and vexillology Facebook group during the protests over the murder of George Floyd, there were so many discussions about race and especially a lot of people were discussing the Confederate flag. And I think in an environment that felt very safe for a lot of these people, they were able to have discussions that they might not have had or might have been significantly more defensive um, if they had been just like in normal Facebook feed or in like a political subreddit. Um, And so just based on the conversations I I was seeing, I think a lot of people really educated themselves on the issue from this like seemingly apolitical flags Facebook group. But then on the other hand, I think it's can be super problematic because people feel like they are not accountable to anyone when they are anonymous. And so the abuse and the vitriol that can be like hurled at people on the internet can be super frightening. And so like being doxxed is when someone releases your information on the internet. Oh is like your address, your name, your phone number. And so sometimes in retaliation for a seemingly innocuous action, like, I don't know, buying a Furby, people will get doxxed. People will like have their phone numbers released online and will receive death threats and maybe you know, well, I think there's there's something else called getting swatted, which is when someone calls in a bomb threat to your house. And, the, and are you kidding? Comes in, yeah. Um, and so people get swatted for like, you know, like things, as punishment, as punishment for things they've done to the community, or like, you know, for again, you know, as punishment for speaking out against something, or or as punishment for starting drama. Um, and there's like absolutely no accountability to this. I mean, people might get kicked out of the community and that that has happened, but they, I think they're certainly acting in ways that they wouldn't have if they had like a name and a picture attached to their account. When you were talking about the safety, um, in my mind, for whatever reason, the connection immediately went to like the nakedness in your family, which I think is such a kind of, cause it's, I relate to that a lot. Um, I think there are a lot of similarities, oddly, between, like, Persians and Italians. Um, But there seems to be kind of this underlying safety, it sounds like, in your home. Like, in the bubble of your, you know, the Canary household. That perhaps, you know, you were more on the fringes on the outside world when you went to school. And, you know, you had to to engage with everyone else. And am I Italian or am I American or Canadian? But at home is it safe to say that like you felt a certain sense of just like safety and belonging like within the confines of your household? Yeah, I think for sure. I think we were also like very encouraged to explore the world around us in part because my parents knew that it was a bit of like a survival mechanism to like learn how the world worked. Um, And it was also like necessary for them. Like Marta, please learn how 
like the university system works because we don't know how you're going to apply to university. So we need to learn it together, you know, kind of thing. Um, and I think also, yeah, like they've always kind of the, I think perhaps differently than other immigrant parents, my parents' expectations for me were not particularly like strict. Like I wasn't required to bring home like you know, incredible grades. It was always like, we want you to be doing your best. And da, da, da. Um, and I think that did contribute to a sense of psychological safety. I think it also led to like deep seated traumas and like needing to like collect gold coins for the rest of my life. But that's a, a topic for another time. Listening and hearing all of this, it it's hard to kind of disconnect Marta, you know, that I know my friend, Marta, the law student and Marta, the internet anthropologist I feel like it's so much of like who you are and as you said like how you see the world and what you talk about and find fascinating but I think it is it you can teach your friends in casual conversation um as you have with me like so much about the internet and like identity and community um and the intersection of kind of those three worlds through your passion for it um which is by far like the strangest most magical kind of side hustle hobby task thing that I know of anyone um so thank you for taking the time to one like do all of that but also come and explain it to us and talk about it it's been a pleasure having you Marta thanks for having me this was so fun Thank you for listening to Dandelions, a podcast sponsored by student government at Harvard Law School. Dandelions is executive produced by Anjali Banjiri and me, Mazella Dasami. Produced by Sam Harris, Solange Dasami, and Danny Belgrad. The show is written by Sam Harris and edited by Danny Belgrad. Artwork designed by Georgia Salisbury. Special thanks to Christy Jobson, Sam Parker, Sarah DeLorme, Diego Alvarez, Noel Graham, and Billy Wright. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Harvard Law School or Harvard University. Thanks so much for listening and see you again next time.